Good to have you here this morning. If you are looking from your Bible, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 7 pretty much at the same time. So you can either keep a finger in both places or look up on the screen, whichever you prefer to do. There was a college professor who was furious because nine of his students at his evening class failed to show up. It wasn't until 7 p.m. at night that the first student struggled in. He said, sorry, I'm sorry, sir, but I had an appointment and lost track of time. I missed the bus back. But being determined to get here on time, I hired a cab. Halfway here, the cab broke down. So I went to a farmhouse, and I persuaded a farmer to sell me one of his horses. And I was riding to the campus when all of a sudden the animal fell over dead. I walked the last 10 miles and just got here now. Well, the professor was a little bit skeptical, as I'm sure you can probably imagine. But he decided to let the student come on in and be part of the class. Uh, right after him, another student came, said, I'm sorry, professor. I had an appointment. I lost track of time. I missed the bus coming back. But I hired a cab. Halfway here, the cab broke down. I persuaded a farmer to allow me to buy a horse. As we were riding here, the horse fell over dead, and I walked the last 10 miles to get here. Well, you hear the same story twice. It's a little less believable. But he went ahead and let that student into class as well, wanted to get on with the class. And Well, this happened for the next group of students, everyone coming in with the same story. And finally, the ninth one showed up. The last one who had not made the class. And he said, I'm sorry, sir. I had an appointment. I lost track of time. I missed the bus to get here. But I hired a cab. And he said, don't tell me the rest of it. Let me guess. The cab broke down. And you found a horse. Uh, no, sir. The cab was just fine. We had a hard time getting here because there were so many dead horses on the road. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, we're looking at the makeup of great faith. If you're going to have a good lie, there's a good makeup for it. I don't know. I, th I sort of think if you've got a good lie. I think having all those people with the same story and the guy, one guy coming at the end, I think that's a great way for you to make it for your, <laughs> with your professor there. But there is a good, there's a makeup of things that are done well. And we want to take a look at what the makeup of that is. We're looking at giving God something to work with. And the thing that got Jesus' attention, as we were looking at before, is faith. We saw that the woman with the issue of blood last week, she heard about Jesus. She believed what she heard. She formed in herself a belief on what would happen. She proclaimed it with her mouth, and she acted on that. We told you last week, confession is not just saying something repeatedly. Too many Christians have the idea that confession is merely saying the same thing over and over again until you believe it. It is a proclamation of what you have come to believe. That is what confession is. But it seems in the Word of God that the most universal thing that God can use is faith. There's a few times in the Word of God that Jesus finds faith and calls it great. We want to take a look at those times and see what it is that made this faith great. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, this story has nothing to do with the story we're going to get into, but this is what Matthew leads off with here in 
in this section, he didn't start off with this chapter. He didn't write in chapters. But in this section, he led off with this story. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So the leper had a disease. It was incurable by the day. He knew that Jesus could heal him. He had a problem with, Is Jesus willing to heal me? It seems that the woman with the issue of blood last week was dealing with some of the same issues. She wasn't sure that Jesus was willing. And so she had in herself come up with a plan to not have to deal with Jesus being willing and came up behind him and touched his garments. But here this man was very open about not being sure about whether Jesus would be willing. So Jesus dealt with that question, I am willing, so be cleansed. There are times I deal with the willingness of God myself. How about you? Is God willing to help me in this situation? We don't always formulate our belief on whether Jesus or God is willing to help us in our situation based on the word. Most times we formulate whether he is willing to help us based on past experience. What has God done for me in this area before? What has God done for other people before? Because we are not building our belief off the right things, we get messed up in his willingness. We cannot fix it because we won't go to the right source. If you want to find out if God is willing, you have to come to him. This man had a problem with Jesus being willing. Instead of wondering about it, instead of sneaking up behind him, he approached Jesus about it. If you are willing, you have the ability to make me whole. So that's what he deals with here in the first four verses. And then we go on into the regular story, which has a little bit of dealing with what we're going to get into here. But I do want you to notice this, that Jesus does not get upset at the question. Jesus does not get upset when the man came and said, are you willing? Or if you're willing. Jesus wasn't upset at that. Sometimes you can go to God with questions about his willingness on thing and not have to expect that he's going to be upset with you. I'm just not sure. Can you help me on this? But when he speaks to you, listen. Hear it. All right, let's get on with the story here. Verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. Anybody remember about Capernaum? Remember in the end of Jesus' ministry? He came to the city, and what did he say? Oh, Capernaum, Capernaum, if the works that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. That means some powerful things were done here. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. We're going back and forth of both of these stories because you don't get the complete picture in any one. So we're going back and forth with both of these. I want to take you back over to Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings, because in Matthew it says that the centurion is the one who came, but that's not actually what happened. Verse 1, Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. In other words, 
pretty much the, the, the servant had said, I'm not going to get better. I'm going to die. And he just kind of resigned himself to be dying. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, he who loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. Going back over here to verse 2. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, remember the woman? When she heard about Jesus, we heard this from a lot of people. When they heard about Jesus, when you hear about a thing, you have the decision to make. Do I believe it or do I not? These people chose to believe it. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Now, who, who were the first ones that the centurion sends? I want you to take very, very good note of this. The first ones that the centurion sends, and he sends them, are the elders of the Jews. It's very important to note that. The first group he sends are the elders of the Jews. When the elders of the Jews came, they approached Jesus the way a lot of people approach Jesus, pleading and begging, going on about how he was deserve, how deserving he was. He deserves you to do this. He's done great things for the kingdom of God. He's built temples. He's done great things for us. They are making a request based on merit and mercy. Look at what he has done. And then the pleading and the begging. Merit and mercy. How often are our prayers saturated with merit and mercy? Have you ever needed a healing from something that you've had for a long period of time? What do we do? We start to plead with him. Oh, Lord, I've gone through this for a long time. I've suffered many things. Will you please heal me of this? Will you please take this away? We get into a pleading thing. Have you ever had a financial need that got to be really tough and you came to God with pleading and begging? Father, I've been faithful. I've been tithing. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been telling people about the Word of God. I've been being a light. I've brought this to you before. And it's really pretty dire right now. I need some help. We come to God often on merit and mercy. Now, you know the end of this story. Jesus calls this man what? A man of Great faith. Great faith. Why does a man of great faith send elders of the Jews to beg and plead? Is there faith in that? Is there any faith in the begging and pleading? Is there any faith at all in what these folks are asking Jesus to do? It's all based on merit. It's all based on mercy. So here's my question. What got Jesus' attention? Because merit and mercy won't get his attention. That's not going to get his attention. This is not faith. This is not faith. It is based on works. So I'm based on, on what I do. But Jesus went with him. Why does Jesus go with him? Let's go on and the rest of it. Well, I put this in your outline before we go on and miss this one. 
<clears throat> people of great faith are embarrassed by less. People of great faith are embarrassed by people who don't come to God in great faith. Have you ever heard some, have, you know, you know, you know, faith, you, you know, the message of faith. You followed after the things of <clears throat> faith and believing. Have you heard people go to God and go to God in merit and go to God in mercy, begging and pleading? What happens on the inside of you? Oh, no. If only they knew. It's, always, it's so much easier to hear this in other people than it is ourselves. You hear somebody else doing it. Oh, it's a piece of cake. You pull it right out. It's hard when we hear it ourselves. Go back over to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to get back over here to Luke in a minute. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, the centurion answered and said, well, actually, go back to verse 7. Skip one more, one verse back. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So they came with a, he came, you know, I, my servant is dead. We don't have all the begging and pleading. Just He just came pleading is all we're told. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. So he says in the next verse, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, it sounds like, as you read Matthew's account, that the centurion came, asked, and Jesus said, all right, I'll come, because that's what most people want him to do. And he said, no, no, I'm not worthy of that. I just need you to say the word. Now, we go back over to Luke, pick up in verse 6. Then Jesus went with him, and he was already not far from the house. This verse is so important, understanding this whole thing. When he was not far from the house... Then centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. Many times I've read this. How many times have you read this? And you get the idea from, from Luke that what happened was the centurion had sent for Jesus and then had a change of heart when he saw Jesus actually coming and said, you know what? I'm not worthy for Jesus to come under my roof. Go out there and tell him I don't, I'm not worthy for him to come under my roof. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose this to you. I don't think the centurion ever had a change of heart. I think what the centurion intended from the beginning was that Jesus would speak the word. And I'll tell you to you this way. Who was the first group that was sent? The elders of the Jews. Why would a centurion send elders of the Jews? Because Jesus was a Jew. You would think that if anyone would know how to reach a rabbi, such as Jesus was, it would be the elders of the Jews. And so when they go out there, and I'm, maybe he sent the elders of the Jews, and I'm thinking some of his friends or some of his servants went with them. And when they heard the elders of the Jews beg, plead, and use merit to get Jesus to come, they knew this doesn't line up with our boss. This doesn't line up with our friend. This is not how he thinks. And they probably came on back and told him, they begged, they pleaded, and they used your merit to get Jesus to come. That's not what they're supposed to do. Why would they do that? All right, you guys. You guys are my friends. You guys know me. I want you to go to Jesus. I want you to tell him this. I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. All you need to do is speak the word, and it would be done. I don't think he had a change of heart at all. I think he sent the first group. It's very specifically says the elders of the Jews because he assumed that they would be able to reach Jesus 
that his request would be granted. But when he saw that the elders of the Jews approached Jesus in a lack of faith, I think he was embarrassed. That's not how you approach Jesus. I've heard about Jesus. I know about Jesus. I understand some things about Jesus. It's not how you do this. You guys, come here. I can trust you. Maybe you're not Jews, but I can trust you. You're my friends. Will you go and will you tell him I'm not worthy for him to come under my roof? All he needs to do is speak the word and my servant will be well. And so they come on out. The friends of the elders of the Jews. The elders of the Jews are still there probably begging for mercy and pleading and whatever else they were doing. This is what you're supposed to tell them. I can trust you guys. These are the words that you are to speak. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And that's all the explanation he gives. Doesn't elaborate on it anymore. Doesn't make application. Because he understands Jesus knows how to apply this. So another group was dispatched, different from the first. These are his friends. They are not sent because he changed his mind. They are not to alter the request, but to correct it. He never meant to approach Jesus on a merit or mercy basis. He always intended to approach Jesus in faith. And these folks misrepresented him. And he sent out his friends to correct it. Did you ever notice that he sent out two different groups? One group was the elders of the Jews, and the others were his friends. There's a note made of it. Has to be a reason. We get to heaven, we can sit them down and ask them. Look at the, the same account in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Did we hear that phrase before? Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. I understand how great of a man you are. I understand how less of a man I am. I may be an authority here on this earth, but compared to you, I am nothing. And I did not even see myself as worthy to come into your presence. Therefore, I sent other people. I'll paraphrase here. First group messed up. So here's, here's what we're really supposed to say. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. If you can get the tense of Scripture down, because it is always the same. Look. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Say the word present tense, and my servant will be healed. Future tense. For I also am a man placed under authority, which means I recognize that you are under authority. No one in this world has authority unless they are under authority. Power and authority are different. You may have power, but not authority. Power is different. Authority is, is different from power. 
you can have authority, but not be very strong. You have authority. The only reason you have authority is because you are under authority. If a police officer goes rogue, <laughs> does he still have authority? No, the, the police officer, other police officers will come after him. If a sergeant in the army does not follow orders, what happens to him? He'll get demoted. He'll get sent down. He loses his authority. We only have authority by being under authority. The devil constantly wants to keep us from being under authority. If he can get you from being under authority, he can keep you from being in authority. So how does he do that? He deceives you. He tells you things that aren't true. He gets you to pursue your own will instead of his. He gets you to act selfishly instead of lovingly. He gets you to act on your behalf instead of on behalf of others. He gets you to look at Scripture and say, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to me. He wants us to look at our situation as an exception. Because if we look at our situation as an exception, we remove ourselves from obedience. And we think we're still under authority. And the devil knows, I just got you out from your authority. When you operate outside of your authority, you have no authority within it. So he wants to get you to be disobedient. He wants to get you to hold grudges. He wants to get you to be unforgiving, unloving, be bitter, to be angry. Because if he can get you to be this way, he can keep you from having authority. He keeps you from having authority. You can't take charge of your situation. Then the word's not working for you. If the word doesn't appear to be working for you, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to give up on the word. You're going to go away from God, go away from church, go away from the study of the Word because it has no practical use for you. See how He works? That's what He does. He wants to get you under authority, out from under authority. He'll do everything He can to get you out from under authority. He'll give you every reason in the world why it's right for you to be out from under authority. And you'll believe it and you go after it taken away your very power that you could work and change things in this world. Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, he was tempted. What was the devil trying to do in those temptations? Get him outside. Get him away from the authority of God. If you are the son of God, cast yourself down. All authority has been given on earth to me. If you bow down now to me, I'll give it all to you. See, he doesn't care about losing a battle here or there if he can win the war. He wants to pull you out from authority. You know certain things in the word that you should do. And you don't do it. Why? <laughs> You've got your own reasons. How many of y'all know when we have disobeyed the word, we've had our reasons for it? And they were good ones. And we'd go to God and tell him, well, I didn't do that because. <laughs> right? We got good reasons for it. We got people that did stuff. We got things that happened. We got reasons for it. We'd, got, we'd, go, we'd stand before God and tell him why. What happened to Moses when he went to the rock the second time and he struck the rock? Do you think he was justifiably angry? Who do you think was more wrong in that situation? By our standards, who was more wrong? Children of Israel. 
We saw it with Moses. Moses, I'd be hungry too. I would hit them. <laughs> I'd take that staff and I'd be hitting some people. I would leave the rock alone. We can understand why Moses was angry. But what did God do? Moses, you disobeyed me. You lost the promised land. I've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm convinced that Moses is saying, Oh, good. I get to come home. Forty years of wandering around the wilderness with these people. I'm glad you got somebody else that you can take. <laughs> if I'm Moses, I'm thinking that. <laughs> Joshua, I'm sorry to do this to you. But I'm going. <laughs> I don't have to do this anymore. We got reasons for why we disobey God. But the devil doesn't care. He got you to operate outside of his authority, God's authority, and to operate under his. He's taken away your authority. He's made you powerless. But you don't know it. You still think you have power. And you still command this, but it doesn't go. You still speak to that, it doesn't change. You've been compromised. Don't let it happen. For I also am a man under authority. He does not in any way try and say, I'm just like you. Because he said, first off, I'm not worthy for you to come underneath my roof. But I am a man under authority like you are. I say to this one, go when he goes to another, come and he comes. Why? Because I said so. That's it. Because I'm under authority. He's not listening to me. He's listening to the authority. He says that to, to back up his statement. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Only speak a word. That's all you need to do. Because that's all I do. I'm under authority. All I do is I speak a word. Come. Go. And things happen. Because I'm under authority. He says, all you need to do is speak a word. You don't need to come here. You don't need to be taking time out of your day. You don't need to be coming into my house. He's a centurion. I'm sure he has a pretty substantial house. Jesus has been in some huts. <laughs> this is a nice house. This is quite a, I'm sure it's quite a place. It's a centurion's house. Just speak a word. Just speak a word. Oh, we love to hear this man speak like that. Oh, that's it. Just speak a word. That's it. You, all, you, all you need is a word. And yet God has spoken how many words to us and given them to us in his word, and we don't do them yet. We don't see their power in our life. But there's a word that's been spoken. We need to do it. There's a story Brother Hagin told uh, to us when we were back in school that the Lord was explaining some things to him about the ministry of healing that was in him. And he actually told him how he could tell if a person he was praying for was demon-possessed. He said, if you go to lay hands on someone, this is instructions he personally got. If you go to lay hands on someone, and as you lay hands on them, the power that is in you comes back on you. That person is demon-possessed. But speak to it, and it will go. So he was... Uh, in a church, and he had done this a number of times. But he was in a church, and there's this person who wanted healing, and he laid hands on them. So a, lot, a long time ago, I heard the story. I know I'm missing a few details, but I got most of them. 
laid hands on them and the power came back or he felt whatever it was that, uh, that he needed to, to feel, told him it was, uh, this person is demon-possessed. And so he spoke to the demon, but nothing changed. So he spoke to it again, and nothing changed. And so he was about ready to give up and to go on. And this part I'm a little fuzzy on. I forget exactly some of the things that had gone on, but the Lord dealt with them. What did I tell you? I told you, if you speak to the demon, the demon would go. Well, I did speak to it. It didn't go. So the Lord said it again. I told you, if you speak to the demon, the demon would go. But I did speak to it. It didn't go. A third time, the Lord said, I said to you, if you speak to the demon, the demon would go. He's a little sterner. But he didn't change what he said. So he finally understood it. He doubted that it would work. He thought it wasn't working because the demon didn't go. And so I believe he had another shot at the, that one and uh, he didn't back down on that one. That time the demon went, person was healed, things went on. When God speaks to us a word, it's true. Whether he speaks it to you directly, personally, or whether he spoke to you in his word. When he said in Mark chapter 11, the teaching that Jesus gave us on faith. For whatever you ask for, believing. Believe that you have received when you pray. And you shall have it. But the believing was past the present tense. The receiving was future tense. And we always keep calling this thing, well, I believe as soon as it happens. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Well, I don't feel better. Well, it didn't go. Well, it didn't change. Put that back up on the screen for us. Mark chapter 11, 23 and 24. Let's just read it. Something good about reading the Word. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. Those things he says will future be done. He will have future whatever he says. That is a specific word of God to us, the church. Go on to the next verse. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. This tense is constantly in the word of God. Believe now you will have it. Believe now you will have it. If you are going to give God something to work with, this is what he wants. Say what you believe and don't let it go. I don't care what happens around. Say what you believe and don't let it go. Last week we were looking at Jarius and the woman with the issue of blood. One, if you come... And lay your hands on my daughter, she will be whole. She will be healed. 
And as they're on the way, word comes. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Immediately, Jesus turned to him and said, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Because if you look at the verse, Believe that you receive them and you will have them. All things are possible to him who doubts. All things are possible to him who speaks. All things are possible to him who believes. We keep wanting to substitute other things in there. But that's not what the Word of God said. All things are possible to him who believes. What defines belief? Real easy. Whatever, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Just listen to a person's talk or listen to your own. Well, I haven't gotten it yet. Believe that you receive them. Does that fit? Well, I'll change how I talk as soon as it happens. Believe that you receive them and you will have them. You're not giving God anything to work with. It's kind of like giving God some supplies to work with and then pulling them back. Not letting them have it anymore. Can't do that. If you're going to give God something to work with, you got to give him something to work with. How many have ever done investments? Nobody ever done investments? How many put money in a savings account? Mm-hmm. All right, we got that one going. <laughs> you put money in a savings account. If you went over to a savings account, <clears throat> so go back to how many were alive during the Jimmy Carter era? Remember back then you were getting 5 and 6% on your savings accounts? Because interest was, or, uh, inflation was way up and interest rates on the 21, 22%. Remember those days? If, how many of all said, boy, I'd like to have 5 or 6% in my savings account again? You want 21% on your primary too? No, we don't want that, do we? Do we want, it, do we want um, inflation? What was double-digit inflation? It was so bad we had a, what they invented, a term, a whole way of figuring things out. It's called the misery index. It's the first time recently they started bringing it back. Once Ronald Reagan came on the scene, the misery index went away. We never heard about it again until recently. We started to bring that up. But it was a misery index. They were able to figure out how miserable you were. And that neat? There was a whole formula they had, you know, looking at the interest rates, looking at the unemployment figures, looking at the, all the different figures. They put it all in the uh, inflation, all that sort of stuff, and they figured out how miserable you were. Yeah, it was really, really true. If you don't believe me, go back there and you can look it up. I, grew, I was uh, in college during the Jimmy Carter era. I was embarrassed to be an American during those days. He was, not, he was a nice man, but he was not fit to be president. But uh, people voted for him, and... He got in. Misery index. But we'd say, oh, like that 5 or 6%. So if you think back, though, you got 5 or 6%. If you have, uh, say that you had some money, $5,000 to put into your savings account to get 5% interest back in the Jimmy Carter era. And you put that $5,000 into savings account, and then you went over to the bank and said, look, something came up. I need to take $4,500 back out. But... I need you to still pay me the interest on the $5,000. How many would make that request of a bank? (laughs) No, they'd laugh at you, right? (laughs) That's ridiculous. We pay you the interest if the money's here, right? We don't pay you interest if you have the money. We pay you interest if the money's here 
the idea is we use your money, we get interest for it, and then we pay you for the use of it. That's the idea. But why do we do that with God? Here, God, here's a faith statement for you to work with, and before the afternoon's over, we've taken it back. Well, I'm believing God. I've asked God for this, and I believe I have received. And then somebody comes up to you a few hours afterwards. How's that thing going? Well, nothing's changed. Donate yet. You just took it back. You just walked up to the counter and said, I need my deposit back, but I'm still expecting you to pay me interest. That's ridiculous. Don't do that. That's not, that's not right. That's not the way that it should be going. This man doesn't do it. This man says very clearly over here in Luke chapter 7, but say the word, verse 7, and my servant will be healed. All I need for you to do is say the word. Well, why don't you say the word? You have the authority. You have the authority in this realm. Authority has not been given to all people yet. Remember what Jesus said when he went up on the, on the transfiguration? All authority has been given unto me. Therefore, you go. And he commissioned us to go out in his authority. Up until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Right? He commissioned us to go out in his name and to do things. But up until then, that wasn't so. So this man understood authority. I'm not under that authority. You are. You have authority over these things. If you say to this thing, go, it will go. If you say to health, come, it will come. Just speak it. Just say it. You say the word, and it's done. And Jesus marveled. He was, he was amazed at this. I haven't seen this great faith in all of Israel, he says. Say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This, was, this statement is not based on merit. It's not based on mercy. It's based on faith. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in utter darkness. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now he turns and says this to people. Who does he turn and say to? Jews. Jewish people. What's he saying to them? He's saying this to them. There are going to be people from the east, the west, the north, and the south, from all over the place that are going to come and sit down with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that's you guys. Do we put out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? <laughs> Is that pretty strong? These are people that are following Jesus. These are people that are listening to his words, and he speaks as strongly to them. I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Basically, this is a heathen, this is a Gentile who has greater faith than the sons of the kingdom. You guys have seen all these things. I haven't even seen this man face to face yet. So he turns and he says this to them. How many know this is not too PC? Jesus lost all political correct points right here because he's just messing with stuff. <clears throat> he's just intentionally saying things to get people upset. So after he gets done talking to them, he turns back around to the centurion's buddies, his friends that were sent. Go your way and as you, what? Have believed. Past 
tense. The believing is already done. We've acted on the belief. So let it be done for you. And his servant was healed immediately. Now the same hour, which means not at the same instant that Jesus spoke, but within a relatively short period of time. So the belief was done past tense. The action was done future tense. The receiving was done future tense. Look at what Jesus says. Go back to the beginning. Assuredly, I say to you. Wait, let's go all the way up to verse 10. When Jesus heard it. What is the it that Jesus heard? It says he marveled at it. He heard it. And he spoke about it. Down over here, he speaks about it. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith. Not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What would bring people from the east and the west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? What causes that? Real simple answer. Faith. Faith in God is what gets you into the kingdom. So he's saying there's going to be people in the east and the west who are going to have faith and are going to be in the kingdom what causes you to be put outside of the kingdom in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? No faith. So we're still talking about faith. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness. And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, their faith, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed the same hour. Well, Jesus has two statements here. In Jesus' two statements, we have only two things that he details. Such great faith and as you have believed. But he calls his faith great faith. The woman with the issue of blood. How many think by our definition, that's pretty great faith. But what's he say to her? daughter, your faith has made you whole. Why does he say to this one, great faith, and to her, your faith has made you whole? There's something made it different, isn't it? How many have ever been down at the shore? How many have ever seen a little wave? How many will go in the ocean when there are little waves? Yep. How many have seen some big waves? You can see some big waves down the Jersey Shore. But if you go over to Hawaii, over the North Shore, you will see some great waves. I have a picture. It's on the desktop of my computer. I can click on it anytime I want to. Of a man riding a 100-foot wave. Yeah, that's scary. 100-foot wave. That is a great wave. We can go down to the Jersey Shore and we can, you know, when we get four, five, six foot waves. We're thinking, man, this is great. Right? But that is not a great wave. When you compare it to a hundred foot wave, <laughs> that's nothing. A little tiny thing. Four or five foot. <laughs> How many of you have been hit by a four or five foot wave and say, that's no small thing? Hundred foot wave. Wave. Make a mistake on that, folks. 
It's over. I've heard some people talk about those waves over in Hawaii. And uh, they say, you know, if you wipe out and you don't do the right thing when you wipe out, you could be dead. Because it'll throw you down in the car all that's underneath and you can tumble and tumble and tumble and, and not be able to get up for air for a long time. That's scary. There's um, that's, it, it's, it's, it's easy to pick out a great wave compared to a little wave because it's bigger. We can see that. But we can't really necessarily see anything different between what the woman did and what the man here did. But this one he called great faith. How many know if you have little faith, Jesus said you can do a whole lot of things. So if you have regular faith, average faith, you can do even more things. But what if you have great faith? Do you like those, you like those uh, new AT&T commercials they have coming out? I think they're hysterical. I'm never going to buy AT&T stuff, but I still think they're funny. Uh, you got the, little, the guy who was sitting at the table with all the elementary school kids. You know, what's better, fast or slow? Right? <laughs> what's better, doing one thing or doing two things at the same time? What's better? And the kids' responses are fun, aren't they? I mean, they're just fun to watch and... You've seen the commercial before, but it's still okay to see again. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, well, it's real easy for us to tell something that's great when it's bigger. But what is it that makes the difference between this one and, and if this guy were to sit down and say, what's better, something little or something great? What do you think those kids would say? Great. 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 <laughs> Yeah, absolutely great. We want to see those great things. Great things. We always sometimes look at size. That's, that's not always it. You know the largest shark in the world is harmless? It's a whale shark. Largest shark out there. Largest shark species out there. Huge. Harmless. You were in the swim next to a whale shark? No fear. No problem. I mean, he's a whole lot bigger than you are. But he's not going to eat you. He's just going to leave you alone. There are some sharks that could do some damage to you, but really have no interest in eating people. They don't like people. A lot of times sharks bite people and spit out the pieces because, oh, that, ugh, it's like broccoli. Ugh. It's not what I expected. They were expecting a seal. They like seal. They don't like people. And then there's other ones that just are doggone aggressive. Tiger sharks are one of the most aggressive ones out there. They're not big, but they're, they're doggone aggressive. We were cleaning up my fish tank this week, and my wife a lot of times has to come over and help me when I clean up the fish tank because we have this little fish who thinks he is a great fish. <laughs> How many of you have ever seen that uh, movie uh, Nemo, Finding Nemo? Yeah. You know the little clownfish in there? Don't let that movie fool you. Those things are nasty. Nasty, nasty, nasty fish, and because um, they just they just they're they're just mean. And what happens is I think I told you this story before, but in the clownfish family, they're all born female, they're all born male. Every single one in the litter is, is male, every one. And uh, what happens was one becomes dominant and turns into the female. That's just how it works with the clownfish. I don't know why God did it that way, but that's what happens. So what happens was we have two two clownfish <clears throat> in the tank. When we got them, they were both male, more than likely. But the one has gotten bigger than the other and has become dominant. 
and it has become the female. And it's just, it guards its territory. Now, we used to get along in the tank. I used to go in there and clean the tank, and we had a good old time. And we put this thing in there pretty early on. It was this red piece of algae. It was a big, uh, looked like a big sheet of algae, just red and put in there. And, and these things, they're, they're, uh, these clowns that I have, they're called Ocellaris clowns. They're actually tank bred. They're not bred out in the, the wild. And so they don't always bond to you. Ever see the clownfish and they get with the anemone? And, you know, that's, uh, everybody likes seeing that picture. It looks real neat. Well, these are tank raids fish, and they don't always bond to anemones because that's not always something that they know. But they bound to this piece of algae. And they would wrap themselves up in the algae, hide themselves in the algae, and they loved that algae. And I tried to keep that algae in there, but after a while, the algae kept deteriorating, falling apart, and eventually I had to take the algae out of the tank. And I think that's what set him off <laughs> because it just hasn't been the same since. And so we, ha- we put this nice little <clears throat> bulb anemone in there, and uh, they just would have nothing to do with the anemone. They didn't, uh, didn't do anything with it, left it alone, wouldn't go into it, went, sw- went, went swimming it, went sleeping it, wouldn't do nothing, just left it alone. So they were without a house for a long time, and I think that's when they got mad. Because we didn't always have that problem, but now it's getting bigger and bigger. And this guy is so aggressive, so nasty. That if he sees me, I'm the one who feeds them. You know, I'm the one. I, I come to the tank, I feed them. They know I'm coming. All the other fish, oh, he's here. <laughs> he's going to feed us. This is great. Thank you. This guy, you get close to the water, I'm taking you out. <laughs> That's what he does. He, he does it. If my hand is up near the water, he is, or she is right there trying to get at me. The only reason he, she can't is because I'm not in the water yet. But it's saying, if you get in here, I'm coming to get you. I know it. That's what it's thinking. You just watch this thing. And so when we go in there, you know, every time you go in there, you have stuff that falls, gets moved. You have to go in there. You have to move it around. You have to put it all back. Well, you have to watch out where this clownfish is because this clownfish is he's in my tank. I'm coming after him. And it will come after me. Now, it's only, uh, it's not even two inches. But it'll, it'll strike so hard. One time, I had a rock in my hand. I was moving the rock, and I saw it coming, and I turned my hand to put the rock between me and it, and it hit the rock with such force, I felt it. It hits. My wife has the net, and she says, man, I keep going after the net. <laughs> nasty fish. Nasty, nasty fish. Well, yesterday, you know, I was in the, in the, in the morning before we went over to the, the, uh, the show. I was in there doing some stuff in the tank, cleaning it up. And stuff, and uh, I was watching him, but uh, he got he got me, S- stung me right in the finger, got me in there, and said, "You know, it, it hurt. It, it's it's not bleeding or anything. They can cause cause you to bleed, but it, it didn't cause anything to bleed. I was I was surviving, <clears throat> but it came after me, and so and it, you know it was doing this, and all of a sudden it was coming to near there. Well, she wasn't around at that time. I had the net in one hand, I was working with the other, and it came on by, and I scooped up and I got it. Scooped him right up. I said to her, I said, quick, get the plastic container. We put him in the plastic container. And she says, you're not going to keep him out of there, are you? So there's nothing that says I had to put him back in. So I'm contemplating, flushing him down the toilet, <laughs> taking him back to the store. All this. I'm contemplating all these things. And then my wife sees the other one, the peaceful one. And it's swimming to a side of the tank. It never goes, oh, he's, a, he's never over here on this side of the tank. Oh, he's looking for his friend. You've got to put him back in. <laughs> so I don't got to do nothing. 
I'm in there and I'm having fun. I am cleaning my tank. I am moving stuff around and no one's bothering me. We don't need no net. <laughs> Nothing. I'm in there moving all sorts of stuff. I'm doing stuff that I wouldn't be able to do before because you have to keep watching out for this guy coming on over. Oh, we were having fun. This little guy, he thinks he's a great fish. He's a great pain in the neck. But he's not a great fish. I put him back in. I, I put him back in. and I find something to eat clown fishing. <laughs> no, they, got, they, uh, they bonded to the, to the anemone. After a while, that's their, their home now. And everybody likes when they come over, they see the clown fish and the anemone, and they think that's really cool. But they're selfish little critters. They don't feed the anemone. They just live in it. And that's, uh, that's what they do. But he thinks he's a great fish. He's convinced I can take you out. He's convinced of it. Well, when we look at this, you know, what is it that Jesus sees that says this is great faith as compared to our one who had faith as compared to those who had little faith? Remember he said that to his disciples after the storm? Oh, you of little faith. If we could determine what it is that gets us from being in little faith into being of faith or being great faith, wouldn't we be able to change our situation a whole lot better? That's kind of something we need to find out. How do I get to be one of great faith? The woman with the issue of blood, I love that. It's one of my favorite stories in the Word of God. But she's called faith. That's better than little faith. That's better than no faith. But this guy is called I have not seen such great faith, no, not in all of Israel. Something about him made his faith great. I think it'll be something we can figure out to do. Because if I can give God great faith to work with, can he do more? If I can give God some faith to work with, he can sure do something with it. If I give God no faith, I'm not giving him anything to work with. I've got to give him something to work with. So what is it that makes his faith great? If I can get a hold of that, it can make my faith great. I put this in your, the end of your outline here. Do our prayers contain the residue of merit and mercy? Or are they saturated with the power of faith and belief in the word power and goodness of God? Do our prayers contain the residue of merit and mercy? Or are they saturated with the power of faith and belief in the Word of God? I remember ever going into the shower and they have those cleaners that do. What do the cleaners for the shower aim to do? They all have the same aim. They all advertise it on the TV. They talk about it. They are there to get rid of the residue of what is left over from the shower because it hap- what happens it builds up. You get soap residue. You get hard water residue. You get different residues that build up. And your tile becomes dull. The glass on the, uh, the shower becomes dull. And you want to go in there and take off the, the residue. We have all kinds of places where there are re- windows outside. They pick up what? Got a residue of outside. Residue is not good. We want to get rid of that. We're always going in to clean. We want to get rid of the... Residue. We don't want all that stuff in there. We've got to get rid of the residue 
of merit and mercy because we've been so saturated in it that too often we go to God and we pray mercy and merit instead of faith and power. We've got to get rid of the residue. This guy got rid of the residue. No, they, they came wrong. They weren't supposed to come to you with the merit and mercy. I sent my friends here. They're the ones who are going to speak on my behalf. All you need to do is say a word. Go, come, whatever you want to do. Just say a word. My servant will be fine. He'll be there. We've heard over and over again from the word of God that Jesus never prayed to God for someone to get healed. Right? We all know that's in the word of God. How many times, though, do we pray when someone comes for us for healing? Oh, God, please heal this one. Why? Because there's a residue that's left over. There's something that's left behind. Anybody ever had orange juice in the morning after you brush your teeth? Oh, you all know what that's like, huh? Why? Why does the orange juice taste so bad? Because there is a residue of toothpaste in your mouth. Now, generally, a residue of toothpaste is not a bad thing, but not when you want to have orange juice. That's not good. If you're a coffee drinker, is there anything that after you drink coffee doesn't taste good? I don't know. I don't drink coffee. No, that's not. <laughs> I go around on my, I've always done this since I was a kid. I generally eat one thing at a time. I eat my bread. I eat my potatoes. I eat my meat. And I don't generally mix any of them in between. I don't go, well, a little potato, a little meat. I don't generally do that. Why? Because when my palate is set up for meat, I want to taste the meat. Now, you all don't work that way. That's fine. But you understand what it is when you, when you have a residue of something? It affects the taste of what is to come. When you have a residue of something on the, on the shower glass, it distorts from what it's supposed to look like. If there's a residue on the tile, it doesn't look as nice as it's supposed to look at. Residue makes things not as good. We've got to get rid of this residue of mercy and merit from our prayers and we're not talking to other people in other churches we're talking about us right here i've heard some of you pray i've heard some of you pray for other people and frankly it shocked me because you're praying on merit oh god heal these ones look what they've done oh god these ones have suffered heal them why are you praying merit and mercy that's not what's going to get god's attention the reason that Jesus followed after these guys is not because of what they said. It's because down in his spirit, he knew he was going after faith. I know that there's faith there. And not from what you guys are saying. You guys can go home. But I know that there's faith there. I'm going to go find that faith. I don't want to hear what you guys have to say. But there's faith out there. I know it. And when he gets there, wow, this is great faith. <laughs> this isn't just faith. This is great faith. We've got to get rid of it. We're going to spend one more week on this. We're going to find out. We want to uncover what is the secret of great faith. If Jesus can determine little faith, faith, and great faith, then don't you think there's a way that we can determine it as well? We need to find out what it is. So we're going to spend one more week on this because I want to give God the greatest faith I can to work with. I want to give him everything that I can. If we want God to do some stuff, we've got to give him something to work with. So we'll pick that up here next week. We'll look at uh, another place. We can learn some, some clues and put them all together.
find out what, what God is doing. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to understand your word, to understand how we can be victorious in this life. We want to give you things to work with. We want to give you good things. There are times that you're going to come and you're going to say, what do you have? And we're going to show you what we have. And as insignificant as what we have is, you're going to make it into something great. There are times you're going to say, I need you to do this, cast the net on the other side, but we fished all night. Cast your net on the other side. Cast your nets down for another, another catch. Oh, and we see, even though we've done it over and over again, when we do it in response to your word, it works. There are times that we don't have anything specific, but we can follow after the things that you told us to do, like Philip, like Stephen. And great things can come because we follow after the general commands that you've given us to do. Or we can do as we did to see here today. Great faith can be had, not because someone specifically told us something to do, not because we have a word from God, but simply because we understood what was going on, how faith worked, understood authority, and we did it. Father, we want to learn what great faith is. So we meditate on this this week. I thank you for the way that you open up our eyes to see and to understand that we can affect where we are by giving you something powerful to work with. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.